This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our first-time guest, writer-director Scott Hardy. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. It's a little chilly here in L.A., but can't complain at 60-something degrees. I know it's much colder around the country elsewhere. I think it's in the mid-50s for me, so not too much worse, but talk to me in about a month, and uh, it'll be a much different story. So, Scott, with all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. First up, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Yeah, sure. I'm a writer, director, and producer of fiction and nonfiction films. I grew up in a small town just outside of Sacramento, California, called El Dorado Hills, California. I think it was there that I fell in love with movies and cinema and mostly like other small town movies or movies that took place in small towns like E.T. or The Goonies or kind of anything that Spielberg had touched creatively. I think those movies are kind of what lit my fuse to try and pursue making films. And that started in my early 20s. And later I moved to Los Angeles for graduate school and I've been working in the industry ever since. So you got to be pretty excited about the Fablemans. Absolutely. I think, you know, just watching that trailer, I'm anticipating everything that I love about Spielberg films. So really excited. Yeah. I might be one of the few people that teared up to the trailer. That's how sentimental I am imagining the film to be for me. Yeah. I mean, any of those slow push ins that he is iconic for, it plays every bit of nostalgic, but also it seems fresh in this film too. And the music that he chooses is always emotionally driven. So yeah, I couldn't be more excited to watch it. So what is your favorite movie then and why? My favorite movie, uh, I think my favorite movie probably changes <laughs> year to year because uh, there's so many great ones. But right now I would have to say that my favorite movie is Drive by Nicholas Winding Refn. And it's kind of a different choice, but I think it's a really great small film. And it's actually the first movie that my fiance and I bonded over. We love the movie and we kind of loved, well, we love Ryan Gosling also. So He's fantastic in that. <laughs> he really is. I think it's the first movie that really showed that saying of show me, don't tell me, right? There's scenes in that movie that there's very little dialogue, but you can feel the character's emotions. Between Ryan Gosling and Carey Mulligan, I think they absolutely killed it. I love the music, too, by Cliff Martinez. is awesome. It's a movie I haven't seen in quite a while, but it's still kind of a visceral memory of the first time you saw it. And it is a movie at some point I would like to cover on this because I think it's kind of one of those that I think people talked about it at the time, but didn't get a lot of like awards attention. It was kind of in the background a little bit. And so it's one of those kind of unheralded movies that it, you'd like to promote a little bit more. Yeah, I think 
you use the word visceral, and I think that is the perfect word to describe Drive. I think there's what I think is is a poetic violence in the movie. Like anytime you pair opera music with someone getting their face kicked in, I think is like cinematic gold, and Refn does it so well. And uh, I think there's also a number of actors that most audience members might forget that are in it, like Oscar Isaac's in it, Brian Cranston's in it, Albert Brooks was casted against type, Christina Hendricks, Ron Perlman, there's a lot of people in it that make it really memorable. I just remember so much the first time seeing him leaving the Clippers game. Uh, that that to me was like, oh, okay, I know we're in somebody who knows exactly what they're doing. This is their movie. All right, I'm ready to just let them take over and I'll watch. Yeah, I think the movie really bleeds coolness. <laughs> One last question, then. What makes a good movie for you? I think what makes a good movie for me is films that establish a really interesting tone or that unique feeling. I think of movies like Uncut Gems and how anxious I was the entire time watching that movie and then finally realizing, oh, wow, this was the filmmaker's intent for you to feel this way. Or like, or like the movie Rudy, you know, and how that makes you feel so warm and inspired. So I think tone has a lot to do with what makes movies good. I also think having a really good antagonist who like has a strong ideology is really awesome. I think of movies like Cuckoo's Nest was like Nurse Ratchet or Agent Smith in The Matrix. Characters who we think of them as bad guys, but they don't think of themselves as bad because of their own beliefs. You know, you started to describe that, and one of the movies that immediately comes to mind is the first Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Driving tone, great protagonist, and probably the easiest of all time bad guy antagonists, the Nazis. Yeah, I mean, you also put yourself in the shoes of relatable hero, right? We all feel like we're Indiana Jones and we're, we got the whip and we're avoiding the giant boulder. I think scene after scene in that film, it's exciting. You know, it's a really good example of what makes each scene great. And you can look at that film and you can go through every single scene. And there's, there's a reason to each scene why they exist, because whether it's a line of dialogue or a line of action, there's bits and pieces in there that make every scene in that movie great. And that's what makes it memorable. So let's move to our movie of the evening and discuss Reservoir Dogs here. So tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Reservoir Dogs from 1992, currently celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Written, directed, and starring Quentin Tarantino, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, and Steve Buscemi. So let's start here, gentlemen. Dad... Where would you put Tarantino among the list of indie filmmakers that came into prominence during the 90s? Okay, so I started going through and trying to remember everybody. So here's my list of who I can remember. Gus Van Sant, Abel Ferrara, John Singleton, Brian Singer, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson. There's one big omission that I can think of. Who directed the Oceans movies? Uh, Soderbergh. Okay. Yeah, all right, I should have added him. So, to be honest, in looking back on these, I mean, Anderson's had some highly acclaimed movies. Van Sant, his directing of both Milk and Goodwill Hunting, 
and really an underrated film, Finding Forrester. I think those are two that would be in in competition, but but I think uh, Tarantino kind of rises above that because there's just a certain element in pop culture that finds him cool. He's kind of the more modern version of Scorsese as far as the type of films with raw emotion, violence, language. And so I think it resonates with more people. The others, I think, have made some significant contributions, but I think his films just probably resonate more with pop culture than the others. So if I were to venture a guess, I think from a status as far as a name, Tarantino ranks higher than any of those on that list. Unless you're somebody from the industry, you're probably not sure who John Singleton or Abel Ferrara are. And I mean, realistically, you're still pulling back names for a Gus Van Sant or even a Wes Anderson among non-movie lovers. But Quentin Tarantino is a name that transcends a little bit of the pop cultural or it pierces that shield. I think most people sitting around your Thursday night group of all the middle-aged guys that hang out with you at least have heard of him, even if they've never seen all of his movies or even seen one of his movies. So I think from a status standpoint, he ranks easily the top of that list. But then as far as his film quality, I think he is unique to himself because he took a lot of B-movie concepts and made them popular. But at the same time, it depends on an acquired taste. I don't think that I enjoy his movies any more than I do maybe Wes Anderson. And I really enjoy the sentimentality of Van Sant movies. But those are very different tones. Tarantino is a tone to himself. And I think a lot of people have tried to copy that now and have borrowed from him, which is not only ironic, but it's poetic, to borrow Scott's word, because of how much he's borrowed from everybody else across the movie landscape. I guess, where does he rank for you, Scott? I think the 90s was like the last moment of real excitement we had with independent cinema. I think it was such a big bang moment with Tarantino entering the scene with Reservoir Dogs in 92. There's others like the Coen brothers and Spike Lee, even Sam Mendes with American Beauty. Like that was at the tail end of the 90s. Right. Yeah, I'd have to put Tarantino definitely up there with those guys. And it's really hard to to separate the, the talent, but it was such a pleasurable decade of movies. And I'm I'm really hoping we return to that soon. Aren't we really talking about subjective when we're starting to rank or to say this? Because I can tell you some of my favorite classical composers, like Mozart, I like enjoy more than others. But yet, that doesn't necessarily mean Mozart was better. It just what appeals to an individual's taste. Yeah. And we all know the name Mozart, right? So whether you like him or not, he was able to penetrate the pop culture of the time. And his his name has lived on. Tarantino's got to be similar. Spike Lee has to be similar. The Coen brothers are probably a little bit behind them and as far as name recognition for the general public. But it's interesting how certain names definitely creep through, whether you've watched them or listened to them or not. 
So then to maybe beat a dead horse for that conversation, then where does this particular movie being his first rank among the nine current Tarantino films? I think it's going to be a while before we get his 10th and final film. He's been doing a lot of other projects at this point, but for you, where does this rank? For me, and this is just because it, it carries a very uh, special place in my heart. Uh, it's my favorite Tarantino movie. Reservoir Dogs is my favorite Tarantino movie. I'd probably put Inglorious Bastards as my second favorite. But there's something really raw and really imperfect about Reservoir Dogs that I absolutely love. I love the fact that it was this new director on the scene writing some of the most incredible dialogue that we had never heard before. Earlier, I talked about that old saying of show me, don't tell me, right? Well, Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs is famous for tell me, don't show me, right? I don't know. It was, it was just a, a lean forward moment of, okay, this guy's got something to say. And uh, I don't know, his, his movies after Reservoir Dogs became much more beautiful. <laughs> and uh, so there's something that's, I don't know, just kind of antiquated that I love about it. I also love the violence in it. It's like crazy for the time. If you would have asked me five years ago what I thought the best Tarantino film was, I would have said this film. I thought maybe this was a controversial take at the time, but this was actually better than Pulp Fiction. I just liked the stripped down nature of it, and it wasn't quite so complicated by doing the weird patch-like storytelling Yes, I could understand the flashbacks, but it wasn't quite the same as taking story B and inserting it, even though it happens before story A, and then all of the other pieces that kind of went around it. And so I've grown since then in appreciation for Pulp Fiction, although I would actually contend that I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his best film. And then I'd put somewhere in that top three with Reservoir Dogs, also in Glorious Bastards. But I think there's a conversation to be had for maybe a Django Unchained, depending on your taste for that movie as well. Well, personally, I enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the most, simply because the vehicle he used was just masterful. He's foreshadowing the Tate murders throughout the film. He's building tension and then it really comes to the point where you're expecting you know what's going to happen it's kind of like how do you build tension with an event that you already know what the result will be well of course he takes that turn spoiler alert and that release of tension just erupts into laughter and he makes it so outrageous that it is funny even though it's highly violent and outrageous, he used that. Because, I mean, how many times have you been in a stressful situation and you start laughing? Because that's the way to release the tension. And he used that in that film. And so that's why I loved it, simply because it was something I had never thought of doing or having a director do in a film before. Now, whether you like it or don't like it, I think that this film and Pulp Fiction are very similar. I think Pulp Fiction is an attempt to make the characters more refined and developed. I think that was one of the big criticisms that some of the critics had when it was released, that they felt that the characters were too shallow. And 
I guess if the, if you want character development, you're going to like Pulp Fiction more. If you like the action and just the raw violence, the the emotion, you're going to like Reservoir Dogs more. And so I think for each individual, they're going to be very different. So I thought Reservoir Dogs was by itself just very good because sometimes you don't want elaborate. It's better to just keep things simple. And then on top of that, I loved Inglorious Bastards, even though I'm, as a historian, going, no, no, you, you can't tell history like this. It took me about a day afterwards to appreciate the film because the alternate history just really threw me for a loop. But still, in, in retrospect, I enjoy it much Have you seen Django Dead? Parts. I have not seen the entire film. Yeah, if you uh, had problems with the history in Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained takes history, braids it into a rope, and then jumps rope with it. Repeatedly. <laughs> okay. And given that your expertise happens to be the American Civil War, it will definitely offend your sensibilities. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's interesting how he plays with changing history. I mean, he kind of did that in Hollywood as well, right? Right. It's a reclaiming of history for the, I guess, the protagonist. It's not exactly the protagonist, but essentially the Jews getting the better of Hitler, the black people getting the better of the plantation owners, and Sharon Tate or Hollywood getting better of the Mansons. And I think what's really interesting, you know, we're debating which film we think ranks the best of Tarantino. It shows his consistency, you know, of quality film after quality film after quality film it would be hard to put another filmmaker up next to him and say, yeah, let's see uh, who has that longevity, that consistency. Well, I think among indie fans or people that you're, you're just looking for a director from the last 30, 40 years that you could name his Rushmore of films, putting those four, let's just put Inglorious Bastards, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and then you can throw in either Django or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, depending on your sensibilities. Rank those against Spielberg's top four or Scorsese's top four. Any of these modern directors that we still have a relationship to and some of their most famous films. And I think he's up there for most people just due to the amount of times his films have been viewed and the kind of cult following that he has even though it may not have the general audience stance that like a Spielberg has, obviously for Jurassic Park and Jaws and et cetera. He still has a good portion of the population that loves his movies for exactly what they are. Yeah. And then it just comes down to taste. So dad, this was your first time seeing the film. So this is your immediate relationship. Scott, what was your relationship coming in with this film? Well, Dogs was the movie that kind of capped off my coming-of-age period in life because I saw it probably the first time I saw it was in my late teens, early 20s. And I think it was the film that really kind of showed me how a film could be told differently with its nonlinear structure. And like I said before, I was so impressed by the writing by Tarantino in the film. And it's really the movie that kind of inspired me to do this professionally the themes are really strong. I also think there's this interesting father-son dynamic in the film that you might have to dig deep to find, but 
I'm not sure I that you have to dig all that deep once you see the final scene between Kaitel and Tim Roth. That that very much is a scene that you could have seen in any Scorsese movie. Yeah. Basically cradling the head, but at the same time trying to grapple with whether he needs to kill him. Right, right. And how they establish their relationship immediately in that blood-soaked car, right? The father figure is really looking after the son, trying to encourage him to think positively. You know, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, the sing-songy, yeah. Yeah, until he admits it himself. And the payoff is really, really awesome in the end between those two. So I think I came to this maybe the first time in college, and by that point, we're talking 2009, 2010, the nonlinear story had been done so many times in TV or film by that point that I was not unused to it. Pulp Fiction is so nonlinear that it's unto itself, and so that's always been a harder entrance point if you're not expecting that, but this movie was much easier for me to follow. And so I thought this was always a stripped down, much simpler story that you could relate to much more easily than a Pulp Fiction, which I think you needed a different mindset to be able to understand and appreciate. And so I always favored this movie by comparison, even though I think they're somewhat bookends of each other, especially since there is carryover. Michael Madsen's character is John Travolta's brother. That has been famously said over, you know, time. And there was supposed to be a prequel movie that Tarantino was going to write and direct that they never ended up doing. And both the actors aged too much to actually do the film. But regardless, I think that I came to this movie and thought it was the better version because it surprised and shocked me. But it wasn't something by the time I saw it that felt unfamiliar. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Between the two movies, I prefer dogs. So, Dad, what is this movie about? I guess, to some extent, I mean, it's a, a clear film noir. And I, I think it's as much about the relationships of people who are thrown together, even when it's a criminal enterprise and how they interrelate. I mean, the guy that seems to be the oddball, the one that rubs against the grain through the entire thing and kind of annoys everybody is the ultimately the one who uses the situation to his advantage to make sure everybody's dead except him and he has the, the diamonds at the end. Just to interject, while we were watching this the other day and there are people much smarter than I was, apparently the whole thing with Mr. Pink at the end and Buscemi leaving there's, according to Tarantino, a very muffled sound as he leaves that says, don't shoot, because he's caught by the police. So the question has always been by the audience whether he was killed before Keitel eventually kills Tim Roth, or at least what we think Tim Roth is going to die, because we're supposed to question whether everybody died from the film. Interesting. I recently watched the film again, and in my own mind... I think Pink got shot outside. Like you hear the you hear the police sirens, but maybe maybe that didn't exist. I don't know. I believe they all perished. I am a little suspect on what happened to Mr. Blue. We hear he died, but we never get visual confirmation of that either. He's either dead or he's alive, or the cops have him or they don't. <laughs> right. We we talking Schrodinger's cat. The only way we'll know if Blue is alive is if 
We open the box. Right. Much different 90s film. Yeah. By the way, another guy that I think you left off of your list. Who? Fincher. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, I tried. Oh, no, you did it. You did a good enough job, but I just think that once you start going through it, the 90s created so many of the guys that we have relationships with even to now that it's hard to understate and rank where all of them are. Well, don't you think that part of that is based on the fact that the 90s is about where it started, where you didn't necessarily have to have huge movie cameras and an elaborate stage, and it opened it up for small budgets individual people and such to to suddenly come into the situation yeah and it was before the era of uh ip driven content i think you're going to see this uh, potentially happen the last part of this decade as people start using their iphones to do films no that's already been happening for what five six seven years at least yeah i'm really hoping that the future of film, at least the writing of film improves quite a lot. And I think it might be because, you know, the industry was shut down for COVID quite a bit. And I think in general, the process of filmmaking has always suffered from not as much investment in pre-production because they're so motivated to get the product out quickly and because of deadlines. But I think during COVID, the writers were actually able to write and had time to write and develop their stories. So, uh, you know, deadlines didn't exist. <laughs> All that existed was time. So I hope over the next five years, we're going to have some really, really good, unique stories. Time will tell. So, Scott, what do you think this movie's about? So on the surface, you know, Reservoir Dogs, I think, is about obviously a heist gone wrong. But to me, the movie's about a moral compass of a bunch of bad guys. And we get the opportunity to see the different shades of evil through each character. None of them are pure, but they're all shades of of their own ideology. So I look at the movie and I see a a bunch of guys also. (laughs) It's kind of a movie about masculinity in a way, because they're all putting on the act of what it means like to be a man and who's the toughest or who's the craziest in their own way, it's kind of like a pissing contest or, and only when the shit hits the fan, do we really get to see the vulnerable real, you know, who's the real man in the scene. And obviously we get to see that between Mr. White and Mr. Orange. To me, that's what I think it's really about. So I think one of the things that having listened to several interviews with Tarantino, that a lot of crime films tend to be about is the randomness and meaninglessness of crime. And that, a whole bunch of random things can take place within the scale of committing a crime that you didn't expect. Fargo being a great example of this. A movie that the bad guys are just complete morons and are screwing it up all the time. It's probably more reflective of actual crime than this movie is, even though there's a lot of mistakes made by the criminals in this movie. But I want to say that Tarantino really heightens a lot of the emotions and the stakes within this movie, basically dials a lot of it up to a 10, and then really tells you one thing that a lot of crime movies don't. There's no honor among thieves. 
I would disagree because I think that this film shows that there is some honor among thieves. You know, I think Kaitel is protective and I think that shows his honor. He's willing to sacrifice himself for somebody else. And having, again, as I say to people and who've listened to the show on a regular basis, in my previous life, I was a criminal defense attorney. And so I was involved in a lot of different criminal conspiracies. And there were people who were involved wait, wait, in- hold on. You were involved in criminal conspiracies or you represented them? I represent people. I mean, I had, I was involved where I was representing somebody that I think there was a 35 person drug cartel that was operating in Western Wisconsin that I represented one of the defendants. DCI was, uh, or Department of Criminal Investigation, which is a subdivision of the Attorney General's office, handled most of the investigation. And the officer who I had to cross-examine for almost an hour was the same officer that was involved in how to make a murder up in Manitowoc. So anyway, but I, I, I see that there's a lot of times people who have remorse or who feel guilt much more than others. And I think that's what this film is. The one who's the biggest sociopath is Mr. Pink. He doesn't care about anybody, anything other than himself. So I think there is some levels of honor, of honor. And I think that part of this representation is to show the difference in individuals, even though they're in a common conspiracy or a common criminal activity. Well, there's definitely a few things I'd love to follow up on there, but we probably should give some extra background on this movie. So do you have our plot summary ready for us? Oh, I do. Six men are hired to rob the local jewelry store for a recent diamond shipment. Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, a new guy, Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen, a trigger-happy killer, Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, a paranoid neurotic, Mr. Brown, Quentin Tarantino, and Mr. Blue, Edward Bunker, hired by mob boss Joe Cabot, Lawrence Tierney, and given fake names so no one could identify the others. At first it goes smoothly, but then the alarm gets tripped, several employees and customers die in the panic, and the cops show up within minutes, resulting in a massive bloody shootout. They soon realize that one of them had to have been a police informant. But who? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Harvey Keitel as Mr. White, Larry Dimmick, Tim Roth as Mr. Orange, Freddie Newendike, Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde, Vic Vega, Chris Penn as Nice Guy Eddie, Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink, Lawrence Tierney as Joe Cabot, Randy Brooks as Holdaway, Kirk Baltz as Marvin Nash, Edward Bunker as Mr. Blue, and Quentin Tarantino as Mr. Brown. Recognition for this movie, Reservoir Dogs was released on October 9th, 1992, after previously debuting at Sundance earlier that year. It made a modest $2.9 million in its initial run, but was boosted after the success of Tarantino's second film, Pulp Fiction, from 1994. Steve Buscemi won the 1992 Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Male Actor. Reservoir Dogs ranked at number 97 in Empire Magazine's list of the 500 greatest films of all time. Reservoir Dogs currently holds an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 79 score on Metacritic, and a 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? Armed with $30,000 and a 16mm camera, 
Quentin Tarantino is all set to make the film with a bunch of friends, including his producing partner, Lawrence Bender, who is going to play Nice Guy Eddie. It was then that Tarantino received an answer phone message from Harvey Keitel, asking if he could not only be in the film, but help produce it. Keitel had gotten involved via the wife of Bender's acting class teacher, who had managed to get a copy of the script to him. Keitel's involvement helped raise the budget to $1.5 million. Did you know? The film's budget was so low that many of the actors were simply asked to bring their own clothing as wardrobe, most notably Chris Penn's track jacket. The signature black suits were provided for free by the designer, based on her love for the American crime film genre. Steve Buscemi wore his own black jeans instead of suit pants, and Michael Madsen wore a jacket and pants that came from two different suits. Did you know? Madonna, who is the main topic of the opening conversation, really liked the film, but refuted Quentin Tarantino's interpretation of her song, Like a Virgin. She gave him a copy of her erotica album, signed, To Quentin, It's Not About Dick, It's About Love, Madonna. Did you know? Quentin Tarantino was originally going to play Mr. Pink, although he made a point of letting all the other actors audition for the part. When Steve Buscemi came in to read for it, Tarantino told him that he really wanted the part for himself, and that the only way Buscemi could possibly wrestle it from him was to do a killer audition. Buscemi duly complied. Did you know? Quentin Tarantino wanted James Woods to play a role in the film and made him five different cash offers. Woods' agent refused the offers without ever mentioning it to Woods, as the sums offered were well below his usual salary. When Tarantino and Woods later met for the first time, Woods learned of the offer and was annoyed enough to get a new agent. Tarantino avoided telling Woods which role he was offered because the actor who played the role was magnificent anyway. It has been speculated that the role to which Tarantino was referring was Mr. Orange. Did you know? Quentin Tarantino added the opening diner scene to give Mr. Blue, Edward Bunker, some lines because he was the only character without any. Did you know? The budget wouldn't cover police assistance for traffic control, so in the scene where Steve Buscemi forces a woman out of her car and drives off in it, he could only do so when the traffic lights were green. Did you know? According to an interview on the DVD, Michael Madsen says that Kirk Baltz asked to ride in his trunk to experience what it was really like. Madsen agreed, but decided as he went along that this was the time for his own character development. So he drove down a long alley with potholes and then a Taco Bell drive through before taking Baltz back to the parking lot and letting him out. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing Double Indemnity from 1944, written and directed by Billy Wilder, co-written by Raymond Chandler, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, gentlemen, let's start with best performance. Dad, who did you have? Steve Buscemi. Every time he was on screen, you knew he was going to say or do something that was either highly charged or that you would be drawn to him automatically. So I think he had one of the better parts in the film, but I also think he nailed it as far as what the part was supposed to be. He's frenetic throughout, and he's my best secondary performance. I would put this up there probably with Fargo as being his best film performance. Scott, who did you have? 
Well, I'm going to go against Trent, and I'm not going to pick an actor. I'm going to pick Quentin Tarantino, the writer, as the best performance. I think his uh, opening diner scene, the scene in the car with the bloody back seat. I think Mr. Orange going through his story within a story within a story was really this introduction of a powerhouse creative voice. So for me, it's Tarantino, the writer. Yeah, I definitely considered him from a dialogue standpoint. I think that's the thing that really sticks out for most people about this movie. But I do think there are enough powerhouse performances that you can go in a lot of different directions. For me, this was a complicated one. I really considered Tarantino. I considered Buscemi. I considered Keitel. But the person that just really stuck out the most to me when really thinking back on the film is Madsen. He is so psychotic that it's just hard whenever he's on screen to not be drawn to his performance. And he's got this, I think I I heard somebody comparatively say like a Dean Martin quality, but he's a psychopathic Dean Martin. And by comparison, he brought so much to the middle of the film that when his death happens, it resonates with you almost more than anything else. I felt that his sheer total performance elevated him above the rest for me. He's definitely the character that I remember the most. Scott, who's your best secondary? Tim Roth as Mr. Orange. I think his character goes through the most development and uh, you really feel for the guy throughout. I think you get to see the shades of an informant and you kind of get to go into his world a little bit. I have the 15th celebration of Reservoir Dogs DVD at home. And there's a couple deleted scenes which feature his character that kind of dig even deeper into his backstory and and what he's facing. So I don't know. I really enjoyed seeing Tim Roth as the informant. I had him as my most charismatic because it's kind of an against type role for this genre of movie. Normally when you get a crime drama and it's told from the perspective of the criminals, whenever there's an undercover cop or something to that effect, they're the bad guy because you're relating to the criminals. But at the same time, that's not what this movie's about. And you really do want to give him a pass for everything that's gone on. In fact, you're probably rooting for him against all of these terrible people in a way that you wouldn't normally if it was told from this perspective. So I thought he was endearing. I thought, uh, even though he has a terrible accent in this movie, is still one of the best parts of it. So most charismatic for me. Dad, secondary performance. I had uh, Tarantino, the author, and it's because of the, the dialogue. I couldn't go as the best because I also think that there was a little bit of lacking in some of the character development that I would have liked. I think the the best scene for character development was the breakfast scene because I think it kind of showed more of each person's personalities as they're in a situation outside of their criminal endeavor. The debate about tipping is pretty epic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He has a way of imbuing all of his movies with these conversations that people have possibly in everyday life, but that nobody would consider would be interesting in a movie. And yet they are whenever he writes them. Yeah, because he has, he has his tone. 
it's kind of musical, you know, the way he writes. It's his beat. <laughs> Scott, most charismatic for you? Most charismatic for me is Mr. White, Harvey Keitel. I think the moment that kind of sums that up is when he brings out his comb and he's combing the hair of Mr. Orange as he dies. He he has the wherewithal to be cool or be calm when absolutely all hell is broken loose. And for me, I'm just like, yeah, all right, I can dig this character. He's the most charismatic for me. I agree. Everything I've seen Harvey Keitel in, I enjoy him. Even a film that I absolutely hated, The Piano, because I could never figure out what the hell it was. I mean, it was just bizarre as far as I'm concerned. And I and I appreciate Holly Hunter as an actress. I still have no idea what that film was about. It's been a while. Maybe I need to watch it again. But he's the only thing about the film other than Holly Hunter playing some sort of prudish character that I have any memory of. And he has a, an ability to poke fun of himself, and to, to even though he is a, considered in Hollywood one of the most serious and intimidating actors. He just has a, a, a way of presenting himself that just dominates the screen. Well, I find it interesting that, especially for how much this film lines up with some of the early Scorsese works, that he's in both this film, Mean Streets, and Taxi Driver, and for that matter, Pulp Fiction. So he has very much an archetypal choice as far as what he picks for movies to be in. Yeah, what separates him in this film is he has heart. You know, he really has a compassion for a guy that he's met probably a couple weeks before the job, but he takes a lot of responsibility for the outcomes of their mistakes. His character is admirable in, in that regard. Well, the way he and Mr. Orange kind of relate to each other reminds me a lot of some type of like almost war film that guys are injured in battle together and all of a sudden one of them has to take care of the other one. That's what this reminds me of, but it's set in a completely different universe. I felt that exact same thing. I think you're spot on. I think those that experience it know it. And uh, those that write about it try to translate it the best they can. <laughs> Let's go to best scene then. These are the nominees that I have down. I have breakfast. So the opening scene at the diner. I'm dying. So Tim Roth got shot in the uh, backseat of the car. We've been set up which is uh, Mr. White and Mr. Pink kind of going back and forth. Then we have the backstory to Mr. White. Then I have what I will comically refer to as ear-splitting music, the commode story, so the backstory behind Mr. Orange, the final standoff, and then the epilogue, which is just the final scene after Mr. Pink's gone out the door. Did I miss any? No. Those are good. Okay. So, Scott, let's start with you. What did you think the best scene was? I think as a filmmaker, the best scene was the commode story, right? It was Tim Roth describing a story. Tarantino makes the brave choice to have Roth speak this memory, not only to the audience, not only to his table of listeners, but then he turns it and makes his memory speak it to the cops that are in the story. And I think especially at that time, it was a really unique narrative tool that he used. 
So for me, I think that is the best scene. It was edited very well. It was shot very interesting. The moment Roth hits that hand blower, I think is a perfect way to like kind of settle it. And the silence of the dog barking also in that moment. It was almost a tonal shift in the movie for me, but it stands out as I think what I would consider, you know, the best scene if I could pick one that could stand alone. I have the uh, warehouse we've been set up. The interplay between pink and white, it kind of set the tone for the rest of the movie and kind of like foreshadowed everything that was likely to take place. In retrospect, knowing how it was going, he foreshadowed even who the informer was, but you didn't pick it up. It surprised me when the reveal took place later in the film because I hadn't thought about it. But now in retrospect, I kind of go, yeah, you know, I think he probably did kind of know what was going on. For me, it's ear-splitting music. I think not only is this the best scene, it's probably the most indelible because it's got the shock value of yeah, Michael Madsen's just going to really torture this guy. Oh, he's cutting off his ear? I mean, they cut away to it slightly, but then they show it after that, and it's still just got this, I don't know, awestruck nature to it. You you can't look away, but you want to. It's so tough of a scene. And then to relieve the tension of that entire moment with the reveal of who the mole is, I think was not only a masterstroke in just the filmmaking because of how it's set up and watching Michael Madsen just dance around with his straight razor to uh, stuck in the middle, iconic by itself, but then to have the setup and you don't even remember that Tim Roth's basically there other than that he's just laying in this giant red pool and all of a sudden he's the one that relieves this whole situation and you get this reveal out of almost nowhere especially the first time you see it you just don't see it coming yeah i would say it's definitely the most indelible moment for me in the film it's the most iconic scene in the film it is the thing that i go away remembering (laughs) for better or worse i can't listen to steeler's wheel without it (laughs) it pops in my memory every time I think it is interesting, too, that like in such a violent movie, he chooses to pan away for the moment of cutting off the ear. And I think that was a smart choice. You know, I know he covered the scene with a close up of the ear cut off and other angles. So it must have been in the editing process that he came to that decision. But I think it was a a good one. It almost makes it the most violent moment because you don't see it. Well, I think... It's likely that that was a budgetary thing, that the process of trying to cut that off and try and take care of that would have been too much to try and do at the time. Whereas if you cut away, you can do some makeup over the top that's a lot cheaper as opposed to trying to do that in the moment. I don't necessarily agree with that. Tarantino being such a big movie fan, I think it's an homage to Psycho. The fact is, is you never saw the knife hit Janet Lee. It was all the visceral aspect of the camera angles, the sounds involved, and the subplots or the sub-camera angles. I think that it was more impactful and more menacing by knowing what was going on without seeing it 
And I think he used the same tool as Hitchcock and Psycho to do this scene. I could also liken it to Jaws. Jaws does the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll go a step further and say it's a dedication to Van Gogh. It's him cutting off his ear and giving his love to Marguerite, but his Marguerite is cinema. (laughs) So he's giving us his love by giving us the ear. I can't top that, so I'm going to just transition as best I can into favorite scene. For me, it's the standoff at the end. Fast Guy Eddie just screaming, Don't you point the gun at my dad! And then obviously, three guys going at it. And I think there's still... I'm not sure. We we asked the question when we watched it together the other day, Dad. I'm not sure Mr. Pink shot anybody. So I don't know how Fast Guy Eddie ends up dying. Who else? The bullet just rained from the sky? Kaitel gets two off. I watched it frame by frame. Kaitel gets two of them off. Two of them? <laughs> yeah, he gets two of them. But yet Pink comes out from under the stairs with his gun drawn. He's a coward. <laughs> All right, I'd have to watch it again. But to me, I don't know. That's my most indelible moment. Yeah. My favorite scene is the breakfast scene. Because in life, and the older I get, the more I realize this, the most memorable moments can be the most innocuous situations that you can experience in your life. One of my favorite experiences as being a young father and first married was after football on Sundays was taking a walk through the cemetery near my house that I lived at when Tom was just a baby him in a stroller and his mom and I and walking around talking about life. That's completely innocuous, but yet that's a powerful scene, a powerful memory that sticks with me yet to this day, 30, 31 years later. I can still feel it. I can still hear the rustling of the leaves on the ground, the smells that were going on of the musty kind of smell from the decaying leaves and the wet ground. Those are sometimes the things in life that have the most impact. And you don't think about them at the time. But why they stay with you, I don't know. They create the kaleidoscope of what is your life. Well said. Scott, what is your favorite scene? I think my favorite scene is the opening scene right after uh, we see the credits with uh, Bloody Orange in the back and White comforting him. It was such a a shock and a tone setter for me and seeing a character like White trying to calm Orange down while we know that his impending doom is an hour and a half away from taking place. It showed me their relationship at these two characters' lowest moment. I also really, really love the idea and it was kind of planted in this scene but carried on throughout is we always hear about this heist, but we never truly see it. And I think that in a execution of filmmaking is just so cool. And at the time that I watched it, it was definitely lasting for me. Yeah, it's definitely another one of those budgetary decisions that makes you more creative. And I would venture a guess the amount of great cinema that we've had that have been made based on budgetary reasons or something didn't work right And I take it back to a a quote I've often used on this program, but a movie is a series of happy accidents. 
And with that, we'll take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, just a quick note that we've been mentioning the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com for a few weeks now, and I've been working on it for a couple of months. It is now finished and ready for everyone to see. You can check out the show notes for every episode of the show so far, as well as the master rankings list of movies we've done so far. Just click on the Greatest Movie of All Time tab at the top of the site, and you can find everything right there for you. Go check it out. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We have David Davis, 86, was an American television writer and producer. He was involved in some of the shows that were must-see TV for me when I was growing up. The Bob Newhart Show, Taxi, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Rhoda. Yes, he was intimately involved with some of the people that came up with those shows. I think he was one of the springboards for a lot of them. He won an Emmy for his work in 1979. He was also married to Julie Kavner, who he helped get her start in some of those early TV shows. She's most famous currently for Marge, or voicing the character of Marge on The Simpsons. He also served as a special advisor to his close friend James L. Brooks, who he worked in the writer's room with on several of these shows, on both Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News. We also lost Aaron Carter, 34, was American singer. I'm going to name these songs. I don't know them. Crush on You, Aaron's Party, and Leave It to Me. The only thing I remember about Aaron Carter is my two daughters going crazy every time he came on the radio. He had an outsized influence for like three or four years when I was kind of in middle school as being the younger brother of Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys because that was more, I guess, my age group was a a Backstreet Boys fan. He appealed to a little bit younger demographic. And unfortunately, there have been some complicated circumstances to his uh, early demise. But he was also on the reality TV show House of Carters, which he did with his brother at the time. And I think to maybe not necessarily my generation, which doesn't have as strong an affinity, but as you mentioned, to my sister's generation, I think he has some definite hold over kind of their younger years or their developing years. So we take a moment here to recognize both of these individuals for their work and their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. I will go first. Nice guy, Eddie. Come on, throw in a buck, Mr. Pink. Uh Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? Nah, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? You know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, then she can quit. I don't even know a fucking Jew who'd have the balls to say that. Let me get this straight. You don't ever tip? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, if someone deserves a tip, if they really put forth an effort, I'll give them a little something extra. But this tipping automatically, it's for the birds. As far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Mr. Blue. Hey, our girl was nice. She was okay. She wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick? I'd go over 12% for that. Mr. Pink, you're acting like a first-year fucking thief. And I'm acting like a professional. Mr. Blonde. Hey, Joe, you want me to shoot this guy? Mr. White. Shit, you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. 
I love that line. <laughs> Mr. Orange, what happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Mr. White, when you're dealing with a store like this, they're insured up the ass. They're not supposed to give you any resistance whatsoever. If you get a customer or an employee who thinks he's Charles Bronson, take the butt of your gun and smash their nose in. Everybody jumps. He falls down screaming. Blood squirts out of his nose. Nobody says fucking shit after that. You might get some bitch talk shit to you, but you give her a look like you're going to smash her in the face next. Watch her shut the fuck up. Now, if it's a manager, that's a different story. Managers know better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy. So you got to break that son of a bitch in two. If you want to know something and he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers. The little one. Then tell him his thumbs next. After that, he'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. I'm hungry. Let's go get a taco. Mr. Blonde, are you going to bark all day, doggy? Or are you going to bite? Uh, I'm, I'm out. You guys went through everything I had. Okay. Nice guy, Eddie. If you fucking beat this prick long enough, he'll tell you he started the goddamn Chicago fire. Now that don't necessarily make it fucking so. Mr. Blonde, was that as good for you as it was for me? As he holds the ear and he talks into it. Hey, did you hear that? Nice guy Eddie asks if anyone knows what happened to Mr. Blue. Mr. Blonde, either he's alive or he's dead or the cops got him or they don't. That's all I got. I have one last one then. Mr. Pink. Somebody shoved a red hot poker up our ass and I want to know whose name is on the handle. <laughs> Gentlemen, are we ready to move to the Stanley rubric? Yes. Let's do it. Always want to hear that when somebody's yawning. Sorry. All right, Legacy's up first. Dad, did you want to try and tackle it? Sure. Industry. <laughs> This launched Tarantino and his whole career, Buscemi's career, Madsen's career, Roth's career. It spawned a television series, a Bollywood film. This had major impact on legacy within the industry for 20, 30 years. So I'm going to give it for the industry of five. For the public, it's a lesser known film of... Tarantino, I don't think it resonates with the general public. Tarantino fans know about it, and some cinemaphiles know about it, but I had to explain it as I tend to, as I go I go around, I talk to the general people who I do who are not as into movies as I am. I kind of get a pace for what they think or what they know. So I got to go with a three simply because there are a lot of people who have no idea what this film is. So that would give me uh, eight. So as you were mentioning that, I was thinking to myself, this is an absolute five within the industry just because this has been ripped off so many times. People have copied individual scenes. And then I was thinking, oh, there's a direct ripoff in Swingers. And that's another director we forgot to add to your list, John Favreau. Yes. Long trip to walk there, but just the amount of tentacles off of this movie. Several character actors that we've known for years that are in plenty of other things got their start because of this. Steve Buscemi is probably one of the most prolific character actors of the last 30 years, got his start in this movie. Very little work before that. 
And so I think not only from a Tarantino standpoint, but everybody else, I think that easily gets it to a five. And I don't think there's an argument against that. Where we're at is debating over what the resonance is within the public. Now, I think I understand where you're at. Your three is well-received. What I think is maybe the difficulty of this argument for me is that this has a cultural impact that people may have felt but didn't know that they felt. I think given the nature of how many crime films were ripped off and a lot of things were borrowed from this movie and they show up in other stuff, I think that probably gives it a little bit more gravitas but then is that part of the industry or is that still part of the audience? The way that some of these movies work and are structured, I mean, how many people in a modern sense are going to be bothered by the nonlinear timeline? That's pretty used to right now, but that's introduced in this movie. So if you're going to take that on, where does it fall? So I see your three, I'm going to give it an extra half point up based on where I'm feeling this might have more of an outsized impact than people might understand. And it's one of the rare movies that I think it can have kind of an understated value outside of people that actually know the film. So I'm going to end at a 3.5 for an 8.5 overall. Scott? I'm a little biased towards this film. Dogs is easily my favorite Tarantino movie. I think within the industry, it, it has to score a five for me. I think the amount of times it's been knocked off, the amount of images you've seen of the dogs walking in that opening credit sequence is so iconic. I mean, I can't tell you how many shirts I've worn that has that image on it. The music is legendary, the soundtrack, obviously. So the legacy in the industry, I think it's something that filmmakers are very aware of. They're inspired by it still today. As far as the public goes... I think that cult aspect of dogs really helps its ranking in a way, because like you mentioned, when it first came out, it, it flew a little bit under the radar and it was kind of a uh, unheralded movie at the time. It was so uh, radical, but I would give it a, a, a four for the public because I think it does age well. I think every time I watch it, it feels fresh. So what does that equal? That's a nine. Wow. I'm an easy grader, I guess. Oh, you got to have a bell curve every time, so. <laughs> so that's an 8.5 average between the three of us. Impact significance. So I'll take this one first. I think while it doesn't have a lot of box office returns, I do think this developed a cult following after Pulp Fiction, which does present itself within that first initial five-year window. And I think Pulp Fiction aids to this film, but can we basically count what another film brings to it in order to judge this one? I, I'm not sure where I sit on that one. So from an industry standpoint, given Tarantino's rise and his influence, although I would say the latter half of his career has actually been a little bit better than the initial five-year period, even though that encompasses what some argue would be his best film in Pulp Fiction. I will say that it's a four for the industry just because I think a lot of the best Tarantino work was in that second 
and third decade of his career. So we talked about Inglorious Bastards. We talked about Django. We didn't even talk about the Kill Bill movies. Those are all within that second and third era, whereas these first couple of crime dramas made him into somewhat of a rock star in the industry. But I don't think that it had quite the impact until at least outside of that initial window. So I think from that standpoint, I'll go with a four for the industry, and I could be convinced otherwise. From a historical standpoint, both of you could correct me from that. From an audience standpoint, it's tough for me to judge. Again, low box office returns, and I'm not really sure where to put this one. So I'm going to kind of straddle the middle and say a 2.5. So that'll be a 6.5 overall. Dan? I'm going to start with the public because, again, longitudinal history. Having been a young adult, you don't realize the impact in the early to mid-90s of VHS and releasing of films and word of mouth. Even though it didn't draw well as far as the box office and release in theatrics, the five years after, this had a pretty good legacy or a good set of legs in the VHS category, in the rentals, the blockbusters, the local video stores, etc., And so I had to give it a a point above what I originally had thought when I started thinking about that. So I went with 3.5 for the public. The critics, when I have a difficulty sometimes with the industry, I'll read a bunch of the critics' reviews. It seemed like the critics who liked the film really liked it, and the critics who didn't like the film said it was okay, but it could have been better. So with that in mind, I had to give it a four for that. I went with a 7.5 overall because I think overall the people in the industry really appreciated the dialogue and the creativity behind the screenplay. I would say that the the impact on the public and the industry was kind of a case where neither really knew what they had on their hands. It was a fresh look at maybe an aged genre that we had seen, you know, a hundred times before. But in this case, it felt different. It looked different. It sounded different. And I think within those first few years, people recognized that difference. And to some, I think it, it was really like an about face. I don't know how to write about this movie because it made me feel different. It made me it's it's not the normal gangster movie. So I don't think it received its roses until after that five-year period. I mean, it was even ignored in, in festivals and, and in most awards. So I would probably give it a four for the industry and a 3.5 for the public. I'll come up an extra half point on the audience side of it. So get me to a seven based on the video rentals that I guess in this era, I have to be more cognizant of. I mean, that was a time frame I had small children. I didn't get out very often. Pretty much anything I saw was on a VHS tape. So that's a 7.33 average between the three of us. Can I mention one thing? Yeah, go ahead. I will say there was such a large impact on the independent film industry when dogs came out. I think there's 
a large part of the general public that hadn't even heard about the Sundance Film Festival, but they did because Dogs was there. And that premiere at Sundance, I think, really opened the doors to other audience members to recognize the Sundance Film Festival. So I think that also has to be taken into account, the the power that it had, not just as a wide, you know, all around film industry, but specifically the independent industry. Novelty. Would one of you gentlemen go first? I'm still kind of processing my number. I'll start just by saying this film was surprisingly a dark comedy in many regards. And I didn't think I was going into uh, this ride and expecting that. Tarantino has that balance of violence and comedy, which there's many moments that you can't help but to laugh when he's speaking into the ear and it's after that, that horrific scene. You can't help but chuckle. So I think there were boundaries pushed, especially in the gangster genre. Tarantino almost created his own subgenre, right? Tarantino is a subgenre, I think. And the proof in that is so many people have tried to knock off Tarantino's style. Not many filmmakers can be called a subgenre. So the novelty of, of this film was kind of like the start of that. It's a special little gem of a movie. And I mean, it's one of my top 10 films. I would put it at a nine. All right. Deb? I'm going to actually go higher. I went with a 9.5. And the reason was the nonlinear fashion by which the film was done. The only film that I knew of, and I found a reference to it, was Rochamon, which we have done this year, I believe. Yes. I think this is the only time I've seen it in an American produced or made film where it was that much nonlinear. And I think it kind of set a boundary for or a method by which a lot of films could be done with flashbacks. I think it definitely drew into like Dunkirk where there are flashbacks or there are like three different types or different scenes all moving at different times to ultimately come to the same point in the film. It's being able to go out of sequence and that made it really novel. Moreover, Thinking back, the Cagney films, the uh, Edward G. Robinson films, they didn't have the smart dialogue. The best you could do would be like to have or have not or Key Largo, where those were written by, I think at one point, I think think it was Key Largo was, one of them was written by two different Nobel Prize winners. Hemingway wrote one and the screenplay was written by Faulkner. Other than that, you didn't have this type of dialogue or this quality of dialogue for a crime movie. And so I think those are two very key points that are make it more novel. So I went with a 9.5. Nonlinear storytelling is present in one of your favorite movies that we're covering next week. Double Indemnity. It's all flashback. I know. And it's one of the reasons why I loved the film. I saw that when I was in college. But regardless, I do think that for both of the points that you both made, I think this is novel. The controversy to me would come that he borrows so much 
from other filmmakers to make his movies and specifically some of his early movies. But it's the combination of things that's new and the fact that he makes all of the B-movie concepts, the -the over-the-top crime elements, the excessive violence, cool, which really is not something that any other filmmaker had done quite to that point. Some people would like films like that, but you're not going to see a guy bleeding out all over the floor in The Godfather or Goodfellas. It just hadn't been done. And this film also takes what would be ordinarily mundane conversations, and you applied it to this movie, and because it was a conversation that anybody could have had, it made it resonate with the public, which was not something most people would do. So I will agree with the nine. I think I'm a little bit skeptical because of how much borrowing went into this. For example, he has openly said that the Mexican standoff that he has at the end of the film is an homage to Leone and the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But because he can take all of those concepts and make them work, I don't think I can really downgrade this movie as a result of it. Well, let me just comment about this, which is, I saw, and I can't remember offhand what who it was, but it was somebody who was a deep thinker. And his comment was that in our society, the times that people actually have original idea are very minimal. You can point to like Einstein and the theory of relativity, something where it's completely separate. Everybody borrows against everybody. I mean, the Wright brothers built a plane based upon multiple people who failed in their efforts to build a plane and using their data, their instrumentalities, what things work, what things failed in order to progress. And you can't limit it just because somebody did it. Creating it or putting it together in a certain way is the novelty. Let's move to classicness. Dad, this is your category. This is a testosterone film. And I think... If it were made today, there would have to be some sort of a female character or some sort of a minority in it. It, This is very white, male, uh, young to middle-aged. It reflected probably what this type of criminal activity involved at that time. But I think uh, I have to give it a little bit down simply because it is so male, white male-centered. So many of Tarantino's other films go against convention. Jackie Brown, Django. So I'm going to go with classicness with a 7.5 for that reason, simply because it could have done a better job of trying to reflect where things were at that time. So I forgot to give the average for the last category. It was a 9.17 average between the three of us for novelty. As far as classicness goes... I had a little bit of difficulty with this. I think it should be mentioned at the top, as we do almost every time his name is attached to any type of legacy film, but there's the Harvey Weinstein of it. We have not really graded down for that, but we mention it every time. It it does not age well, given everything that's happened and now the fallout of the last couple of years. Any time a Miramax film or a Weinstein Company film is attached, it doesn't sit well. And given his outsized influence in Tarantino's career, 
you know, how much of that do you ascribe to the classicness of this particular film? I have a harder time with this film by comparison to some others because realistically, there is no Quentin Tarantino without Harvey Weinstein. But by the same token, I don't know if that can necessarily be held against the movie either. I I have a difficult time with it. So I'll just discuss the movie on its merits as far as the classicness. There is no spoken dialogue by any woman in this film, save for I think there's one line by one cop at some point during the, the course of the film. Otherwise, no female voice is ever heard on screen. There is no diversity within this film. And yet, I don't hold either of those things against it. What I hold against it is kind of the way that they discussed the diversity within the film. I'm not going to go to the point where I'm Spike Lee commenting about a bunch of white guys using the N-word in a Quentin Tarantino film. I'm not that sensitive. But the Lois E discussion is a little odd. I think for the time, it was kind of like eye-opening and shocking. But it's not as racially cognizant as some of his other films. You mentioned Jackie Brown. I would say Pulp Fiction is somewhat that way. The Sam Jackson role is very well written and he gets a significant portion of that film and it has a better understanding of diversity characters. But then again, this film, I don't think would have been made with a lot of diversity characters in the first place. It would have been really difficult for him to make a movie with anything other than a fairly insignificant diversity character. Yes, if this movie were remade and we had a new filmmaker, let's say a Ryan Coogler or something, this would be made with a lot different color of people. But this is 1992, and it wasn't quite in the era that we're at yet. Even if we did have a Spike Lee, it wasn't to this level. And so I don't hold that completely against it, as I normally do. When we start this category, I start around a seven and will either work my way up because it's timeless or it's aged well, or there have been things that have been borrowed, all the rest of it. And I think this movie does have an element of that, but it does have a few marks against it. And so I gave it about a half point down for some of these complaints, trying to ignore some of the Harvey Weinstein of it. But at the same point, I think you can also move it up maybe a point. So I ended at a 7.5 as well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how this movie will age going forward. Indeed, there are you know many lines of dialogue that will absolutely offend people. I can't imagine that as society progresses that this film will, will have the same effect that it did in the 90s. I'm also not confident that it will age well. Well, let's say, for example, the Madonna like a virgin conversation. How many people under the age of 20 are going to even know that song? Yes, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist for them to know what they're talking about. And the the stance that he takes against women, against minorities, at least the characters, what they speak about, I don't think that'll age well. I think in some ways it was it was a film of its time, but I don't know, the classicness I I think I have to rate it probably a five. All right. So that's a 6.67 average between the three of us. 
rewatchability. We'll let our guest go first on this one. Sure. Like I said prior, I think this movie is fresh. Every time you see it, it's shocking. Every time you see it, it keeps you on the edge of, of your chair. When I watch this movie, it reminds me of an era of films in the 90s that were new and had something to say. And I find myself still being surprised in moments throughout this film. So the rewatchability for me because of my experience watching this film and still being shocked by things, whether it's dialogue or action or gore, I would put at a at a 9.5. This is one that, yeah, I would watch it again so that automatically gets to a 7. But it's fairly intense. It's violent. I, I ju- tend to judge movies on rewatchability. Friday nights are my point in the week where I'm like dead. And I sometimes just want to sit and watch something without thinking about it. Or I don't want to be too heavy because I've had a rough week, that type of thing. I have to be prepared kind of for where it is. And I have to think about who I'm there with. Because your mother, for example, would have a very difficult time watching this film. Just because of the violence. So rewatchability, I'm going to give it a 7 simply because that's where I generally put the mark for where I'll watch a film again. But I can't give it any higher simply because I have to think about where I am mentally and emotionally and who else is with me at the time. Fair enough. So I'm going to go with a 7.5. This is something I very easily could fire up at just about any point in time, but that I don't revisit probably very often by comparison to some other movies. It's not a comfort movie for me in the same way that I've judged like an Ocean's Eleven or a Dodgeball or some other movies that we've covered that I've given easy straight tens. It's not necessarily one that I'm returning to a ton, but it is one that I do enjoy when I put it on. And it does still have some surprises for me, even though I'm pretty familiar with the movie at this point. I'll go at a 7.5 because it's just above kind of some of these movies where I'll put it on and... I know it's important, and I'll put those on every so often, but this is one I enjoy to put on every so often, and so that'll raise it the extra half point to give it a 7.5. So that's an 8 average between the three of us. Audience score for this one, we had a 91% for Google users, a 94% for Rotten Tomato users for a 9.25 overall. So to repeat the categories, we had an 8.5 for Legacy, a 7.33 for Impact Significance, 9.17 for novelty, 6.67 for classicness, an 8 for rewatchability, and a 9.25 for audience score, giving us a final total of 48.92. And that would currently place it on our list between It's a Wonderful Life and Training Day. It's an odd movie to compare it to. It's a Wonderful Life and Reservoir Dogs. A sweet, sentimental Christmas movie and an overly profane, violent Quentin Tarantino film. But that's why we do it. That is why we do it. Let's move to remaining questions then. So the obvious one is who shoots Fast Guy Eddie? I think we kind of already addressed that one. So I'll move to my second one. If the cops were waiting for Joe to arrive, why didn't they rush in when he showed up? 
would have lost some great dialogue and great scenes. Well, we're led to believe by Tim Roth that they're just waiting for him to show up. I would have thought that the minute he goes into the building that they surround and are ready to enter. Well, I mean, think about it. We have 137 police officers standing around the high school in Uvalde, and none of them go in. Boy, that is a hard comparison, Pop. I'm just pointing out that police officers do not necessarily take undue chances. If they think they're all armed and ready to shoot, why would you do that? Wait for them to come out. I guess. I think it was also maybe established that they were a block away without the ability to see inside the building. Like that was one of Mr. Orange's concern about the whole heist taking place. Maybe they anticipated them to go through a different door. All the cars were gone, right? In the parking lot, they made sure to get rid of those. Maybe Joe had an informant in the police and made sure they were 15 minutes late. I mean, there's quite possibly no answer to this, but... (laughs) I don't know. My other one, why does Mr. Orange reveal he's a cop? There's a reason why the hearsay exception includes deathbed confessions. Because you've built a bond and you just feel like as your life is almost over, you need to come clean with this guy. For me, it's the son confessing to the father of his lie. You know, earlier Mr. White revealed his identity. Now it's Mr. Orange's chance to repay the favor. So he has to confess his sins before he dies. You know, I hadn't considered that, but that's a really good idea. The thought of mutually sharing the identities. So, hmm. did either of you have any remaining questions? The one that I noticed and you pointed out, when Bashemi got in the car, Mr. Pink got in the car, in the carjacking, the bag is sitting in the street. I never see him pick the bag up, yet he has the bag. Hmm. Maybe that, in that split second, is how he hid the diamonds. Left him out in the middle of the street in plain sight? Sometimes that's the best hiding spot. Okay. No, I'm just being facetious, of course. <laughs> Any remaining questions for you, Scott? No, my only my only question was what really happened to Mr. Blue? We just never got to see the confirmation of his death. It was all through hearsay. It's all through through dialogue. And that character is actually the one who was a professional bank robber at one point. Yes. Interesting. There's also a moment in the warehouse where the back door swings open randomly. And uh, one of the characters goes and closes it. So I want to know if that was Mr. Blue making his presence felt. (laughs) Or the ghost of Tarantino's character. All right. So thank you for being on with us, Scott. We appreciated having you. Anything that you would like to promote while you're here? Yeah, well, first off, uh, I want to thank both of you for having me and for supporting independent film and for making shows like this about independent movies. I think it really helps audiences appreciate it. For me, yeah, I just wrapped and released my latest feature documentary. It's called Father of the Flying Car. It's a feature documentary about Dr. Paul Mahler, who has been inventing flying cars since the 1960s. And it's an inspiring film about never giving up. And it took me just over 12 years to complete. 
It is now available for free to view on Tubi and also to rent and buy on Prime Video. Excellent. And uh, yeah, as a uh, connoisseur of the Tubi landscape due to this program, and there are a lot of things that are on there. That's uh, an easy place to find if you need to watch something for free. I mean, if Pluto TV can be 1% of the makeup of all streaming or all TV watching everywhere, you can definitely find it there. So that's an interesting one, and I'll definitely have to find it coming up. Yeah, and if uh, anyone wants to find out any more information on the movie, you can go to flyingcarmovie.com or you can view our film's NFT collection on OpenSea where we have a lot of uh, cinematic trailers in NFT form. You can also follow me on Instagram at Scott underscore P underscore Hardy. That's with an IE. And I just really appreciate you having me on this show. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you again for being on, and welcome back anytime. Thank you. Dad, any final thoughts for the week? No. I mean, talking with a friend of mine today, she just commented about how a lot of the films that we do, she's never heard of. And I'm like, well, you're typical. And we try to be broad and and encompass a large variety or cross-section of different stuff. And I guess to some extent, I'm just priding myself on the fact we, we try to provide different films from all different tastes. And I know that for myself, I've picked films or have suggested films that I either haven't seen or have not seen in a while. If you remain in the one groove on the record and you never get to go outside of that, you miss the entire album. Well, I'm hoping that we get to the point that I've done with some of the other podcasts that I listen to regularly, that even if you've never heard of the movie or you haven't discovered it to this point, that maybe you don't go ahead and watch the film ahead of listening to our episode. But we get you excited enough about this particular movie that you go and find it wherever you can and watch it on your own. To me, that says that we have some level of impact on an audience and I don't think we've probably gotten to that point yet. I think most people probably screen it. Oh, I've seen this film or I've seen this film. And that makes it more interesting for them. But that's when I think we'll have some real staying power. And I'll be interested to see when that point comes. I'd also like to say one more thing. and You can put this wherever you want. To your listeners, I would encourage everyone when they feel comfortable enough to go experience a movie theater again. Go feel the sounds of a movie and see it on a big screen. I know when I first watched Dune, the new Dune film was the first movie that I watched in a theater, and it really reminded me how special that experience is. So I thank you guys for making a podcast like this dedicated to movies because it's an amazing art form, and I appreciate your support. Absolutely. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing Double Indemnity from 1944, written and directed by Billy Wilder, co-written by Raymond Chandler, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L. G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in in our fun. 
You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>